Good morning, church. It's great to see you all this morning. Uh, a couple of announcements as we get started. Um, we we're going to have lunch after church. We had so much food yesterday at the cookout that we've got plenty of leftovers. So feel free to, to join us after the service. We're going to have lunch out back and uh, have a few more hot dogs. Um, and there's also, there's all kinds of produce. I think it's out back in the, right out back here in the sanctuary, um, leftover from food pantry. So don't, don't go away without some fresh produce when you leave. I'd like to begin the service this morning with a reading from Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your right hand rest on the man at your right hand the son of man you have raised up for yourself then we will not turn away from you revive us and we will call on your name restore us O lord god almighty make your face shine upon us that we may be saved this is the word of god let's pray as we open our worship this morning father we ask that you'd be present with us this morning that your holy spirit would lift our hearts up to you in praise that we would see you and seek you for who you are, that you'd speak to us in your word, that you would be present with us this morning, Father, and that you would inhabit the praises of your people. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, and you can open the green book in front of you to Psalm 24. The Psalms are in the second half of the book. Psalm 24, and we'll sing that together. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains The world and all those who dwell on its plains Upon the dark seas its foundations are laid and deep in the rivers its moorings are stayed. 
And who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who then shall stand at rest in his ward? The one of clean hands and the purest of heart, who speaks not in vain, ne'er a falsehood impart. This one shall from God his blessing receive, and righteousness be his gracious reprieve to all generations who seek for his face. Almighty Jehovah shall pour out his grace. O rise, ancient doors, be lifted, ye gates. Receive now thy king, prepare his estate. And who is this king in his glorious might? The Lord firm in battle and strong in the fight. O lift up thy heads, ye portals of old, and welcome thy king, his glory behold. And who can it be, this our glorious King, the Lord God of hosts, whose great glory we sing? Amen. You may be seated. This time I'll have the ushers come forward to take the offering. And just as a reminder, this is an offering for our regular attenders. Guests, please don't feel obligated to give. together and we'll sing we give thee but thy own it's on the back of the bulletin If you'd remain standing and open in your blue hymnal to number 401, the church's one foundation. 
and we'll sing that together. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses, with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation, and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. In the words of Psalm 25, To you, O Lord, we lift up our souls. O our God, in you we trust. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty because everything in the heavens above and in the earth below is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as king above all. And so, Lord, because of all that you are, we come to you this morning and we offer you our humble praise. We bow to you as our Lord and as our king. And as we come into your presence, we're made aware of your greatness and of your holiness. And in the light of your holiness, we're made aware that we are but dust, that we are sinners. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and we confess that even this week we've wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. 
We've followed too much the desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We've left undone things we ought to have done, and we've done things which we ought not to have done. And so let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins to God. We ask, Lord, that you would have mercy on us, that you would restore all those who come to you to confess according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we lean on those promises this morning. We come to you and ask for forgiveness, not hesitatingly, but with confidence, knowing the promises of Scripture that for those who confess their sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all sin in the name and through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we trust in those promises. We trust the gospel. We trust our Savior Jesus, that in him we can be cleansed, washed, and made new. We pray, Lord, that you teach us to live lives out of that new life, that we would not live according to the flesh, according to the ways of the world, which we've once known, but that we would walk according to your word, that day by day you would teach us to be more and more like Jesus, that you renew our minds and our lives according to your word. Father, we pray that you'd be at work among us the rest of this morning. We pray that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come, that your name would be hallowed here among us. We ask, Father, that you'd send your spirit to be among us at work on our hearts that we'd see you for who you are. We pray that you'd speak to us in your word. We ask that you'd grow us, that you'd make us more like Jesus. We ask, Father, that you'd teach us to, to grow in love, that day by day we'd, we'd experience a greater sense of the love of Jesus, that we'd learn to love you more, Father. We'd learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that you'd be at work among us this morning, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, Maureen. Okay. Let's take a moment to pray for, for Priscilla. Father, we lift up Priscilla Cash to you, um, who had an aneurysm a while back, and she's going back for more tests. We pray that you'd watch over her. Um, Lord, that you give the doctors wisdom, you grant healing to her body, and rest for her soul in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's stand together.
you can open the, the green folder in front of you again to number 11. How long, O oh Lord? And this will be a new one this morning, but sing along as you're able. Number 11, how long, O oh Lord? will be lifted high and the weak will be the strong when you come like lightning in the sky how long O oh Lord how long kings on earth will scatter when they hear Thundering sounds of angel songs Hearts will tremble filled with holy fear How long, O oh Lord, how long? All our hopes are fixed on you That your promises are true and one day you will return All our treasures here will fade So we long to see your face Until then our hearts will burn How long, O oh Lord You will conquer every evil thing Every sorrow, pain, and wrong They will cease with your return, our King How long, O oh Lord, how long? All our hopes are fixed on you that your promises are true and one day you will return all our treasures here will fade so we long to see your face until then our hearts will burn how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Amen. You may be seated. open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. 
We're picking up here on the story of Abram. The story of Abram. And as you turn there, I want to read you a different passage of Scripture. An interesting verse in Psalm chapter 8. Now ponder this with me. Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This is a prayer to God. It's David speaking. He's praying to, to God, and he says, Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. God, you've shown the strength of your power, the might of your arm in children. And this is a theme that we find throughout Scripture, that God has a tendency to use the weak things of the world to make his glory known. God uses the weak things, the small things, to make his power known. This theme is throughout Scripture. We see it also in, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1. It says this, beginning in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's pointing to the cross, to the weakness of a king crucified, of God on the cross, which looks foolish to the world. How could this be glorious? How could this be victory? And yet it's actually in the death of Christ that God gives us his greatest victory. It's in the foolishness and the apparent weakness of the cross that God saves the world. And then he goes on, verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's pointing around at the Corinthian church. This almost doesn't sound like a compliment. He's saying, you're not very much, guys. <laughs> you weren't very much when God called you. You weren't the wise of the world. You weren't the rich of the world. You were actually the foolish and the weak of the world. And yet... God chose you and set you apart because God is uniquely glorified when he uses weak people. When he uses strength, that strength might have the temptation to glorify itself. But when he uses weak people, people who have nothing to bring to the table, all the glory goes to him. 
God uses the weak things of the world to make his glory known. And that's precisely the principle we're going to see at work this morning in Genesis 14, where we pick up the story of Abram. Now, who is Abram and why do we care about him? Just brief review. Abram's a man, nothing special by himself. But God set him apart, and we looked at that about a month ago now. God gave Abram these great promises. He said, I'm going to bless you, Abram, like I've never blessed anyone before. I'm going to set you apart. And not only am I going to bless you and make of you a great nation, I'm going to use you, Abram, to bless the whole world, to bless all the nations. And so this is the great promise that he gave to Abram. And we followed Abram since that promise. And really the whole story of Abram's life is the story of God being faithful to his promises and of Abram struggling to believe them. Sometimes better, sometimes not as well. Right? God being faithful to his promises, Abram struggling to believe them. And we pick up the story here in Genesis 14 where we're going to see God continuing to be faithful to Abram. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, Abram Among Kings. Abram among kings, because here in Genesis 14, Abram encounters many great men of his age, many great nations, and he's actually caught up in a great military conflict. And it's just little old Abram among kings. And yet Abram is granted great victory, great glory, little old Abram. And by the end of the chapter, we'll see that it's actually God using little old Abram, the weak things of the world, to make his glory known. My prayer is that by the end of the morning, we would see how God actually wants to use our weakness to display his glory. That our weakness actually, in some ways, is our greatest asset in terms of God making himself known through us. We'll talk about what that means. Let's read the passage together. Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kenarim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the king of, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. They also took 
Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. Let's pray. We can ask no higher thing, Father, than that you would speak, O Lord, as we come to you. That by your Holy Spirit, which inspired these words under the pen of Moses, you would speak to us today. That you would show us yourself. You would show us your son, Jesus. And that you would encourage us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The first half of this passage is a military account first 16 verses, and, and quite an alphabet soup of names. <laughs> those, those first 16 verses, it's all this king and this king and this king and this king. And then at the end, we get to Abram. Again, this is Abram among kings. And I want us to see that the tension of these first 16 verses is, is basically this question. Among all these great kings and all these great nations, with all their imposing-sounding names, who is this Abram guy? Who is this Abram guy? He's not a king. He doesn't have a nation. And yet, he's here dining with kings, defeating kings. Who is this guy? And the second half of the chapter answers that question. It's God is with him. That's what's so special about this guy. Um, so I want to briefly just go through the, the setup here of these first 16 verses. Um, basically, you have five kings against four. Okay, that's, you don't need to remember all the names, but remember, five kings against four. There's, um, in the first couple of verses, we're introduced to Amraphel, Arioch, Chedorlaomer, and Tidal. 
okay? These are four kings, um, and they're kings um, from a good ways away from where Abram is, okay? The five kings, um, Bera, Bersha, Shinab, and Shemeber, and Bela, okay, so that's five kings. These are local kings of local city-states in and around where Abram is. So this is in and around Canaan where Abram has settled. That's the five kings. But the four kings, including Chedorlaomer, that's kind of the shorthand for the, the four, is Chedorlaomer and his band. They're from actually way over in the Euphrates River Valley. So they're actually way over from where Abram came from originally. And to get to where Abram is, to get to the promised land, they have to, it's a long journey. Okay, it's a journey Abram had already taken. And it's sort of like you have to go north and then south again. So these four kings of these great empires in the Euphrates River Valley, to be able to do battle, they have to go all the way up and come down into Canaan, into the promised land. So these four, there's less of them, right? Four against five. But these four are powerful nations, okay? So they're coming from the Euphrates River Valley, which is where all the great nations, empires of the... Um, of that, that area came from. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, they're all coming from Euphrates, the Euphrates River Valley eventually, okay? So these four, they're great and mighty kings. Um, and we're told that for 12 years, the five local kings had served the, the Chedorlaomer and the four mighty kings. Uh, and this is a common arrangement in, in ancient times. If you were just a, the king of a little city-state, you were pretty vulnerable. And so you wanted to get into alliance with a big nation, right? And so um, they'd make this agreement. All right, I'm going to pay you so much every year, and we'll be sort of taken under your wing. And Chador Laomer, you protect us, right? If the Egyptians invade us from the south, you'll come and protect us from the north, all right? That's, that's how we'll do it. And so for 12 years, this arrangement went great. And then in the 13th year, we're told that the five nations rebelled. They're tired of paying tribute to Chedor Laomer and his buddies. And so they say, all right, that's enough of that. We're not sending you our tax money anymore. And it's a rebellion. So that's in the 13th year. Now, again, it's quite a ways to these mighty empires. And so it's not until the 14th year that Chedor Laomer and his buddies get together their posse and make their way from the Euphrates River Valley all the way down through Canaan, and uh, we have this list in verses 5 through 7 of all of the nations they defeat on their way. Right? It's like they're, they've got a machete and they're going through the jungle and they're just poof, poof, like knocking out nations left and right on their way to do business with these five rebel kings. Okay, so those are all the giant names in 5, 6, 7. He's just poof, poof, knocking out kings left and right. And then we get to kind of the central battle in verses 8 and 9. We finally have the five against the four. And they're in this valley, the valley of Sidim, that's full of these tar pits, these bitumen pits. And we're, we're given actually very few details about the battle, but apparently the four kings knocked the five kings out of the park. Because <laughs> the first thing we hear is that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who are among those five local kings, they're... They're running for the hills. Um, and in such a chaotic way that a bunch of them are falling into the tar pits. And so it's just a, it's a bloodbath. It's a massacre. 
And along the way, and here's where we get the, the thing that's actually important to our story, right? These great kings, great battles, great empires, and along the way, who gets caught up in it? Our old friend Lot. You remember, Lot is Abram's nephew. That's how he figures here. And Lot had been living in Sodom. And so in this great battle, Lot gets swept up and taken along with these victorious four kings, Chedor, Laomer, and his buddies. And this is the way it happens in the ancient world. When you win a battle against a, another nation, you take their stuff and you take their people. You take all their wealth, all their gold, all their silver, all their provisions, and you also take their people along to enslave them and use them to build your empire, right? sort of as prisoners of war. So this is, this is the way of the world in these times, and that's what Chador Laomer's doing. He's like, all right, I'll take all of Sodom, please, and with them comes Lot. And after hacking through all these nations, after, after putting down these five rebel cities, Chador Laomer must not have thought too much about picking up Lot and his family. Right? Here's just the a refugee and his family, they'll make great, great slaves to, to build our, our, great, uh, our great works back where we're coming from in Shinar and Elam. What they didn't realize was that Lot was Abram's nephew. And they wouldn't have thought very much of that. They'd probably never heard of Abram. They were great kings. They were great nations. Abram's just a little guy right? Verse 13. Then when, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living on the, by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram hears about this. He hears his nephew has been taken along with his tyrant king. What's he going to do? Well, he quits himself like a man. He gets together all the fighting men in his household. 318, which is relatively impressive. Apparently, he had a lot of people with him. A lot of servants, because he's able to muster an army of 313. It's probably a thousand or more people living with Abram and his entourage. But 318 against Chedor Laomer? 318 against this man who just slashed through the whole region? Putting down kings left and right, all these impressive sounding names that we've read? 318 men against Chedor Laomer? What happens? Well, they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan's right in the, in the northern region of the promised land, just about the, the northern border of the land God had promised Abram. And there he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants sneak attack, guerrilla warfare, and he sends them on the run. He defeated them. defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So he's got them on the run, and he keeps them on the run for a ways. Get out of my land, please. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women 
and the people. Now, this is remarkable. This is remarkable. This should strike us. Right? People in the ancient world hearing this story would say, what happened? Excuse me? This guy, Abram, he's not even a king. He doesn't even have a nation. With 318 men, went and sent Chador Laomer and all his forces on the run. And not only that, got all of the spoils of war he had with him, right? All of the people and all of the wealth that Chador Laomer had taken from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other nations. Now Abram's got it. And he's taken it back south, right? So first, the four kings win over the five. So the five are the real losers. And then this guy, Abram, comes out of nowhere, and he's the victor of this whole campaign. Very strange. It's a very strange thing. How are we to explain this? How does Abram explain it? Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Okay, so after doing battle with the kings, that's part one of Abram and the kings, now Abram is having a little summit in the valley of the kings. He's got two kings at the table with him, and they're eating, they're having a feast, the king of Sodom, who, remember, was one of the losers, right? He's part of the five. He's lost everything. Everything has been taken away from him. One of the commentators um, says, somehow the king of Sodom crawled out of a tar pit and found his way to the table with Abram here. And then there's this other king who we'll talk about. He's a weird one, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who's a real puzzle to us. So we've got the king of Sodom, we've got the king, uh, King Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, we're told, was a king. His name means king. It means king of righteousness. We're told that he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the prince of peace. Um, Salem, we think, refers to what would become Jerusalem. Okay, So he's the king of ancient Jerusalem. And we're told not only is he a king... Very strangely, he's also a priest. Now, everywhere in the Old Testament, priest is separated from king. You don't get to be a king and a priest. You get to be a king or a priest. And every time the kings start to do priest stuff, they get in trouble. But Melchizedek apparently is both a king and a priest. We're not told how he became a priest. We're not told where he came from. I've said before, Melchizedek is like Cotton Eye Joe. Where did he come from? Where did he go? Where did he come from, Cotton Eye Joe? We don't know. But he's a priest of God. What does a priest do? He's a mediator. He stands between men and God. And so what does Melchizedek do? Prophetically, he blesses Abram. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek reads providence here, and he sees what's going on in these victories. He says, Abram, you have been blessed. Blessed be Abram. By who? By God Most High. And this is a unique term in the Old Testament. It's not used a ton. 
This is not the generic word for God or the, the name for God that's usually used, Yahweh. Instead, this is El Elyon. It means God most high. It means the God over all gods. Right? Sodom presumably had gods. Chedor Laomer presumably had gods, but not a god like Abram's god. This is God most high. There is no god like this god. Why? Because this god is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is the God who rules over all creation. This is God who made all things in the beginning and so who owns all things. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And then he says, blessed be God most high. Again, same term, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How are we to explain weak Abram triumphing over the great kings? The power and the might of God. You can't explain it any other way. God uses the weak things of the world to make his glory known. It's actually the weakness of Abram that God uses to glorify himself. It's like, how can you explain this in any other way? It has to be the power and the might of God. And so what does Abram do? He acknowledges this truth. We're told that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe of everything. Now, what do we mean everything? That means the spoils. That's all of the wealth that Abram has received that Chador Laomer left in his camp as he ran off, tail between his legs. Um, so Abram takes all of this wealth that he's gained in battle and he takes a tenth of it and he gives it to Melchizedek and we're told that he gives it as a tithe. Tithe literally means tenth. This is the first time this word shows up in scripture, but it's used a ton later, particularly under Moses, to refer to the regulation under the old covenant that required that the people of God give a tenth of their income to the work of the tabernacle and to the priesthood. Um, and the, the symbolism and the importance of this tenth portion given to the tabernacle was actually the people saying, all of this stuff you've given us, God, it's from you. It's yours to begin with. And we need it to live on. But we'll give back a portion of it to you and to your work as a way of saying, it's from you to begin with. None of it belonged to us to begin with. It's all yours. And so I think that's a symbolism of what Abram's doing here with this tithe. He's taking all this wealth that he's gained in battle, and he's looking at it, he's saying, it's not mine. I didn't earn this. This was handed to me by the gracious power of God. I'm just Abram. And so he, he actually gives a tenth of it to God as a way of saying, you're the true victor in this battle, Lord. You're the one who actually brought power and might to the table here. I just brought power. 318 men. And what's that? You're the victor God. And so that's what he's doing in giving this to Melchizedek. Um, he's giving it to the priest of God as a way of saying, God, this is all yours to begin with. Um, people often ask about tithe in our generation as Christians in the New Covenant. Um, I don't believe that tithing is... Um, lawfully required of us like it was under Moses okay so under the Mosaic covenant there is a very specific way you're supposed to give a tenth 
um, of your income to the work of the priesthood. Okay? Now, we don't have a priesthood anymore. We don't have a tabernacle anymore. And we're no longer under the Mosaic civil and ceremonial law anymore. So I don't think we're required to tithe in that legalistic way anymore. But this example of Abram tithing is very interesting because Abram is not under the Mosaic law. In fact, as far as we know, God actually hadn't commanded him to tithe yet. And so Abram's doing this not as a legalistic form of law-keeping, but as an overflow of the worship of his heart. That as Abram comes before the priest and he comes before God, the thing he wants to get right in his own heart is to make sure, Lord, none of this is from me. It's all from you. And Abram wants to get right in his own heart. It belongs to you, Lord, and it always has. And there's a way in which the discipline of giving a portion of what we have to God and to his work is a way of actually getting our hearts right before God. Don't give if you're just doing it out of law-keeping. Don't give just as a form of outward obedience. Give out of your heart. Give because you actually believe everything you have is from God. Um, in that way, the, the principle of tithing, the principle of giving back a portion of what we have is an intensely uh, personal thing. It's between us and the Lord. It's about getting our hearts right before the Lord. And um, it's something we should attend to, not just in our money, but like in everything that we have, in our time. Like, do we actually set aside time to worship the Lord? Do we actually set aside time to be in prayer and in the word as a way of saying, all of my time is yours, Lord, setting aside a portion of it? And we can do this with our homes and with our food. Do we welcome people to our tables? Do we welcome people into our homes? Are we willing to say, actually, it's not mine to begin with right and so i actually give it away as a way of saying lord it's yours it's yours as a way we can actually sort of do this with with all that we have and there's a way in which i think we're called to do this to give in response to what we've been given to an even greater degree because of what christ has done i love this passage because like so much of the Old Testament, Jesus isn't here explicitly, but he's so clearly between the lines, right? All of scripture is, is one unified story that leads to Jesus, points to Jesus. And it's so true here. Really, Melchizedek is the key here to seeing Jesus in Genesis 14, because Melchizedek is just such a fascinating figure. He makes us ask questions. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Where did he go? Who is this king of righteousness, this prince of peace, this priest of the most high God? Who is he? The only other place in the Old Testament that he's referred to is in Psalm 110, where David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, um, uh, talks about this one who is to come, this Messiah, this great king who's also a priest, this, 
this priest in the line of Melchizedek, a priest king of the line of Melchizedek, who is a king of righteousness, a prince of peace, who actually God will make reign over all things. Who is this? Who are we talking about? This is Jesus, right? The priest in the line of Melchizedek. Not a priest like the sons of Aaron. No, this is a different kind of priesthood. This is a kingly priesthood. This is a king who is a priest. This is the son of God who came and made sacrifice, but he didn't just make sacrifice. He died and he rose again, and he reigns as king at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, pleading his sacrifice, pleading his blood for our sake. And I love how Melchizedek sets the table. You'd expect a priest to come and make sacrifice. That's not what he does. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He sets a table in the desert and brings out bread and wine. And what should this recall for us? This is the table. This is the Lord's Supper. And he sets out this table before Abram and he says, look at what God has given you. Look at the victory that God has won for you. It isn't that just what we do as we come around the Lord's table together as a church. We take the bread and we take the cup and we say, look at the victory that God has given to us. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Greater enemies than Chedorlaomer and his thugs. What enemies has Christ delivered into our hands? Sin and death and hell which he defeated on the cross and in his resurrection. What victories do we celebrate at this table? Greater victories than Abram could even imagine. Victories over the grave, which Christ has promised us in his death and in his resurrection. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And if Abram gave a tenth of what he'd received when, he, when he's celebrating these Lesser victories. How much more should we give back to God now that we've tasted the victory of Jesus Christ, of the crucified and risen Son of God? The New Testament teaching is not that we should give part of ourselves back to God, but that we are obligated actually to give all of ourselves to God if we've been redeemed through Jesus Christ. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're called to give all of ourselves to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You, if you are in Jesus, are not your own. For you were bought with a price. If we are in Christ, we've been ransomed by the blood of God through the death of the Son of God. So glorify God in your body. We don't owe God just a part of what we have or bits and pieces of our lives. We can give back bits and pieces of our physical stuff as a way of saying, I'm giving everything to you. It's all yours. It was all from you in the beginning. It all belongs to you. I'm yours, God. 
I'm yours. I love the words of the, um, the Isaac Watts hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. goes like this, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? He's looking at the table that God has set for us in Christ, and he's looking at his own weakness and his own need, and he says, how could God give so much to me who, who don't deserve any of it? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? He's looking at the cross saying, how that the Son of God would die for me, for my sake? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the Son in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. Listen to this last line. But drops of grief, he's considering the tears he's shedding as he's considering the cross. Drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. I can actually never repay what God, he's given, he's given us so much. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Watts is considering, he's like, what can I give to God? And Even if I give all that I have, it won't be enough, but that's all I can do. He's like, just, I give myself to you, Lord. We are not our own. Abram, in tithing to God, acknowledges humbly the true victor. That's what we do in giving ourselves to God. We acknowledge it's all yours, Lord. Everything we have is from you. And then he has a brief conversation with the king of Sodom. And this is a fascinating conversation. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. We should understand this is incredibly bold, brash, and impolite of the king of Sodom. Um, remember who he is. He's the loser on this totem pole, and the rule of the jungle is, to the victor goes the spoils. Abram beat Chedorlaomer, who beat the king of Sodom. Who gets the stuff? Abram. And yet, the king of Sodom has the gall to come and say, hey, look, I'll split, I'll split it with you 50-50. I'll give you a good deal. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So he's crawled out of his tar pit, and he's trying to rebuild his city. Uh, you keep the gold, Abram. It, I won't. I won't bother if you. I won't bother you if you just give me the people. The original audiences of this passage would have expected Abram to say, "No way, man. Get out of here. Crawl back into your tar pit." But what does he say? Verse twenty-two. Abram said to the king of Sodom. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, same term there, El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. I've sworn to him, I've lifted my hand, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap 
or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Abram says, I don't want any of it. I don't want your shoelaces. I want nothing. Why? What's his reason? I don't think it would have been wrong on one level for him to take this stuff. Um, I'm not sure it would have been immoral. But Abram states his reason. He says, I don't want to give you, king of Sodom, even the slightest sliver of an allegation that it's you who made me wealthy. Why? Whose honor is he concerned for? God's, right? That, those titles he uses from Melchizedek's blessing, he says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who gave me all this stuff to begin with. The Lord. God most high, possessor of Sodom and its wealth, possessor of the heavens and the earth. Abram has an adequate sense of the glory of God. He has an adequate sense of the God whom he serves and who has made these promises to him. He says, I serve the God who owns the heavens and the earth. I serve the God who owns Jupiter, the God who owns the sun. I serve the God who made Antarctica, who twirls the moon on his finger. I don't care about your twiddly wealth, king of Sodom. And he cares about God's honor. He says, I, so, king of Sodom, I don't, want, I don't want you to think you made me rich. I want you to know for certain it's God who cares for me. It's God who is my true provider. He insists on glorifying God in his provision. I think we can take a leaf out of Abram's, Abram's book here. I can remember growing up at the church I went to, there was a, there was a, a man who was, he was one of the youth leaders. Um, he's a funny guy. Uh, just talked and talked and talked. One of those kind of people. Always had something to say. And a lot of it was really good. And one of the things he would say almost constantly was, thank you, Jesus. It's thank you, Jesus. Almost just reflexive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And sometimes it would be in response to something. You'd share some good news with him. He'd say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then sometimes nothing was happening. <laughs> a few of us, I can remember specifically, a few of us riding in a car with him, uh, going somewhere, some youth event, and we were just listening to the radio. No one was talking. He was just saying, thank you, Jesus. And I was like, what is good? What happened? Um, he knew. And it's like in every moment, he was finding reasons to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's from you. That's from you. You're my provider of all things. There's literally nothing I can look around and look at and say that's not from God. It's all from him. And... I don't know that we have to do exactly what that man did, but I'm not sure we do any harm. 
by consistently, even around people who don't regard the Lord, right? That's what Abram's doing. He's talking to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom doesn't care about El Elyon, God most high. King of Sodom cares about getting his checkbook back. And yet Abram insists, you need to know everything I have is from God. Everything I have is from God. Thank you, Jesus. This is a way of acknowledging our own weakness, not taking credit for anything we have, saying, hey, I'm nothing without God. I would be nothing. I'm dust. Everything I have, the breath in my lungs, from God. Thank you, Jesus. God uses the weak things of the world to make his glory known. The secret is actually we're all the weak things. As humanity, we're not, we're not that great. We're pretty short in comparison to the God of the heavens. And God wants to use us to use the weak things of the world to make his glory known. May we be vessels of his glory and glorify him in our weakness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak and you are strong. And we thank you especially, Lord Jesus, that when we were weak, when we were yet sinners, in our need, Christ, you died for us victoriously dying and then rising from the grave so that we might have life. We thank you, Father, for the table you've spread before us, the blessings we have in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you teach us day by day, week by week, not to come to the table, not to come to anything in our life with a sense of what we've brought, but with a sense of our absolute dependence on you and of your absolute sufficiency in every way for our salvation, for our provision, for our eternal life. We trust you, Lord God. We pray that you teach us day by day to honor you in our hearts as holy, to in the spirit of the tithe, Lord, to set ourselves apart for you. Not to hold anything back, but to acknowledge everything we have is from you. So we want to serve you with everything we have. And then before the nations, before anyone who hear, enable us, Lord, in the, in the right ways to be able to acknowledge you. And that your praise would always be on our lips. That we would be the kind of people who say, thank you, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your blue hymnals with me to number 571, Trust and Obey. And we'll sing that together as we finish. Sing one, four, and five.
guides hear the still and with all who will trust and obey trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus and to trust and obey but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. <laughs>